for those of you with uh, very young children, there is a, a room at the back where you can go and yet still hear uh, the, the message that's being preached. We're going to uh, turn to 2 Samuel and chapter 12, reading from verse 1. 2 Samuel and chapter 12 and reading from verse 1. If you've got a copy of the uh, usual size uh, print Bibles, it's page 315. And if you've got a copy of the larger print Bible, it's page 484. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. God's word reads, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And we thank God for the reading of his word. Earlier in the service, we had Psalm 51 read to us. It's a psalm of David's response to coming under the conviction of his sin for what he did against Uriah and Bathsheba. And if you read through 2 Samuel from chapter 5 onwards, 
you would find that it's an extraordinary thing that when you get to chapter 11, David falls in the way that he does. Because he's at the height of his manhood, he's somewhere in his 30s, he, he has seen deliverance from all the kinds of troubles and, and troubles and, pro- and problems that he'd been facing, the opposition that he'd experienced from, from King Saul. He's found himself blessed by God in extraordinary ways and raised to the kingship in Israel. He's managed to recover the ark from the, from the Philistines. He's brought it to Jerusalem. He's pitched a tent for it and he has this longing to build a more permanent place where the ark might rest in Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. God tells him he's not to do that. But even as he tells him that, then in chapter 7 we read that God blesses him greatly and tells him that his throne is going to last forever. And there's going to be someone upon his throne who will rule forever and ever. He's an extraordinary blessing. So his fall into sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah is, well, it's incongruous. It, It just doesn't seem to fit with all that has gone before. And yet, sadly, this is what has happened to someone who was yet so blessed by God and was so determined in his life to walk in God's ways and to glorify him. And what I want us to do this morning is just to look at verse 13 and 14 in, one, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'll read those verses to you once again. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And our theme for this morning is this, the seriousness of sin and the scandal of God's grace. The seriousness of sin and the scandal of God's grace. Particularly through the the tabloid media, we're familiar with the word scandal, aren't we? They seem to delight in turning things into scandal, even probably where there's no scandal at all. Uh, But it's certainly not a word that we would use, and certainly not used lightly, in respect to God and his ways. Just to remind you, the word scandal means an action or an event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing outrage. And I wonder if you're shocked by the juxtaposition of those two statements in verse 13. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin and you're not going to die. As those who are fallen creatures, we we have two problems. The first of them is that we don't really fully understand the seriousness of our sin. Sadly, even as Christians, we don't really fully understand the seriousness of our sin. But secondly, neither do we appreciate how extraordinary, and to use the term again, how scandalous God's grace is. But it's the central theme of the story of the Bible to actually address these two matters. 
The Bible, in story after, re- after story, reveals how universal and deep-rooted, how perverse and destructive sin is. But the Bible also reveals how compassionate and merciful, how forgiving and gracious God is. You might remember these words that come from the end of the prophecy of Micah, where he says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. The Bible throughout declares that we are guilty sinners but that God graciously takes the decisive initiative in dealing with our sin. Listen to this verse from the New Testament. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what we're going to see in this verse in 2 Samuel and the the bit of narrative that is around it is both the seriousness of sin and the scandal of God's grace. So firstly, the seriousness of sin. And we get an indication of the seriousness of sin in those words of David. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, you and I know from the the narrative that we have that he's actually sinned against Uriah. And he's sinned against Bathsheba. And presumably their wider families as well because they will have been affected by all that's taken place. But David recognises that first and foremost, although his sin has been against these two individuals, primarily his sin has been against the Lord. Do you notice what he says in Psalm 51 and verses 4 and 5? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David identifies the fact that sin is against God. Yes, it will impact others, but it's God whom we've sinned against. It's his law that we've transgressed. It's his righteous standard that we have broken. It's his image in us that we have defaced. Sinful disobedience and rebellion is not what we were created for. And and this is not just the understanding of the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of 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 the prodigal son? after he'd been away in the far country and lost everything, and eventually came to his senses, he knew that when he went back, he had to say, first of all, I have sinned against heaven and against you, my father. He realized that his sin was something that poisoned his relationship with God. And that it rightly brings us into judgment. We deserve the The penalty that God has appointed for sin. The Bible tells us that it is death. A death that is spiritual and eternal. And the fact that David here 
recognizes that he should die is evidence that he knows that his sin deserves death. That it is the just punishment for his adultery and the murder of Uriah. In fact, both of those sins are said to deserve death in the Old Testament law. Leviticus 20, Numbers 35, both spell out the fact that under the Old Covenant, those who committed these sins should die. The Apostle Paul puts it really starkly, doesn't he? In Romans 6, where he says, the wages of sin is death. No exceptions. It applies to all. And it's the penalty for every kind of sin. Because you might be thinking, well, David, well, that was serious sin, wasn't it? I mean, it can't get much worse than murder. It can't get much worse than than open adultery that's known about. But Paul, in Romans chapter 7, as he's dealing with sin and its consequences, and the glories of the gospel points out that he came under conviction for covetousness. He knew that that was his problem. An inordinate desire for the things that others have. He knew. And he's establishing for us the fact that whatever sin, when it transgresses God's law, it's a serious matter. And it's a sin against God. But of course in Jesus' teachings, he tells us that it's not just the committing of the act. It's actually having the thought about it in our minds that is also sin and is equally deserving of the punishment that God has appointed. So sin, every kind, is serious and incurs the penalty of death. That death which is both spiritual and eternal. It means to be banished from God's love and mercy, from his blessing and the light of his gracious presence. It's described in scripture as being cast out into outer darkness. Now when we're thinking about the seriousness of sin, there are two things that that we do well to consider and do so with reverent fear. And the first of them is hell. The awfulness of this place that God has created for eternal punishment. Remember, hell is not Satan's home. It's not the place that he sallies forth from. It is his ultimate destiny under the judgment of God. And such a place is only necessary if sin is serious. Let me just remind you of one passage of scripture that speaks of this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It tells us that when Jesus returns, he will punish those who do not know God and do not know or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's how serious 
sin is. But secondly, the second thing that points up the seriousness of sin is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could God have purposed such a terrible way for our salvation to be accomplished? How could God pour out his, his wrath upon his son, the son of his love, his only begotten son? How could he enforce that penalty unless sin was deadly serious? Again, hear what the scripture says. These are statements taken from an Old Testament passage that foresaw what the Lord Jesus Christ would go through. It's from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, to make his life a guilt offering. As the hymn writer says, we, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. And because sin is so serious, there's no human way back into a right relationship with God. No way to escape the justice and the penalty our sin deserves apart from the scandal of God's grace. I can I ask you, are you convinced of the seriousness of your sin? Are you convinced of the seriousness of your sin? And if you are, what difference has it made to you and your relationship with God? Let's look at the scandal of God's grace. Chapter 12 begins with the first evidence of God's grace, doesn't it? In verse 1 it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And it wasn't just Nathan coming to David, but it was actually what Nathan had to say to David that was the evidence of God's grace, because it brought David under conviction. You see, when we come under conviction of sin, which we all need to, it's not God being unfair or unkind. It's not our heart or mind playing tricks with us. No, it is God, the Holy Spirit, working in us to bring us to the recognition that our sin is serious and we need the grace of God. And the scandal of God's grace is in those few words that we find in the second half of verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It's just two short sentences. And yet it sums up something absolutely extraordinary. The sin is all David's. He deserves all the penalty that God's appointed for it. And yet God says, I'm going to take it away. God says, 
elsewhere in scripture referring to similar events, that he will blot it out. He'll wash it away. He'll cast it as far as the east is from the west and he'll remember it no more. And that's the experience of everyone who comes under the conviction of their sin and yet cries out to God for mercy. We realise in a way that we just do not deserve that God has forgiven us. The penalty that should be ours is not going to be applied. Just as God was able to say to David, you're not going to die, he's able to say, say the same to us. We don't have to face, because of the gracious mercy of our God, the full penalty our sin deserves. Just like David, through looking to God and his mercy, we can know that we're justified, that we're cleared of guilt, and we're brought into a restored relationship with God. This really is the scandal of God's grace. And yet it's tragic that so many, even some Christians, cannot, will not, accept that this is true. We need to understand that sin is never overlooked by God. That would be truly scandalous. But that God is able to forgive, that God does pardon, that he cleanses, that he justifies, that he delivers from condemnation, and it's all of grace. And on the surface, it seems to be scandalous. It seems to be outrageous. It seems to be morally and legally wrong. It seems to defy God's moral order and justice. Until we look at the last part of what we've read, the innocent son of David dies instead. The innocent son of David dies instead. Verse 14. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. The child is the innocent party in this, isn't it? The child didn't ask to be conceived. The child had no power over its birth. The child was still, as a, we would say, a helpless, innocent baby. And yet it's the child, the son, that dies. It's as if the son of David dies in the place of David. And that's where we see the conundrum of the scandal unraveled. And it's where we see the glimpse of the gospel. For when we truly repent, when we're rightly broken for our sin, we can know the forgiveness of God, we can know what it is to be justified, freed from condemnation, at peace with God through the death of David's son. David's greater son the saviour of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, the Messiah, the Son of God, dies but for sins that are not his own. 
His death is an atoning sacrifice. It satisfies God's justice. It satisfies God's justice even over the issue of David's sin and forgiveness. So that God can pardon and be reconciled to every sinner who truly repents and seeks God for his mercy. So dear friends, I trust that from these verses in scripture you can see just how serious, how deadly sin is. That God's grace is truly amazing. Even to the point where it seems scandalous. You see, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know this peace-giving, this reconciling, this justifying grace of God? Do you know that you've been brought back into a right relationship with God? That he's your friend, he's your father in heaven. And that he loves you with an undying love. If you don't, then can I ask you, can I encourage you to look again at these two verses that we focused on and just cry out to God that he might have mercy upon you, that you would not die, but that you would know your sin taken away and the grace of God flooding your soul. Let's take a moment to be quiet before the Lord and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary mercy that you showed to David. And we thank you that that same mercy is available to us too. Because you're the God who does not change. You're the same yesterday, today and forever. And we thank you, loving Heavenly Father, for the encouragement that there is for your people this morning. That even though the evil one might stir up in our minds a sense of guilt over things that we've said and thought and done and try to convince us that our sin is too great to be forgiven. We thank you that we're assured that when we truly repent, when we're rightly sorry, when we seek your mercy, you are the God who is able to take our sin away. You're the God who is able to wash us and cleanse us and make us clean and restore us into a right relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that if anyone here this morning does not have that same understanding and conviction, does not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as their very, very precious Saviour, Lord, would you draw them to yourself, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. We're going to uh, sing together as we close the hymn that's well known to, to all of you, Amazing Grace.
Hallelujah. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.